The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good day, everyone, and welcome to Power Lunch. Alongside Kelly Evans, I'm Tyler Matheson. Coming up, the unyielding rise in yields and interest rates. 5% now on the 10-year could happen any minute. Got this close earlier today. Fed Chair Powell's comments at first seen as dovish, then hawkish, sending bond yields on a wild run. Plus, Tesla tumbles following results yesterday. Comments from Elon Musk. Several analysts now cutting their price targets. We'll talk to one of the biggest bears on the street. Kelly. Indeed we will. Tyler, let's get a check on the markets. Dow's been fluctuating all over the place, currently down 38. We're down across the board on the major averages now, but only by a bit. Uh, Quarter point for the S&P, 4305. The Nasdaq's down a quarter percent. Rick Santelli earlier saying maybe it's because the two-year yield has backed off since we've heard from Chair Powell. Uh, That's maybe given some room for stocks to initially turn higher, although they've given up those gains now. And the long end might be the culprit for that. The yield on the 10-year, like Tyler said, you can see that spike right around 1 p.m. Eastern. It almost touched 5%, literally four thousandths of a point shy. Uh, 4,966 is the latest. Elsewhere, Netflix shares, they're like, hey, yields, what yields? We're up 15% on results, higher prices, password crackdown. That seems to have put the company back on a growth trajectory. The shares are up 16.5%. We'll get more coming up in Three Stock Lunch. Already uh, comments from Fed Chair Powell confusing the markets just a bit. Steve Leisman joins us now to untangle it. What's your takeaway, sir? I think he offered a largely neutral speech on the outlook for rates that suggest that, pardon me, um, the Fed could be on hold for a while. But he warned that if ultimately the economy doesn't slow, the Fed could yet push rates higher. We see policy working through its usual channels. It may just be that rates haven't been high enough for long enough. And and again, it's all happening in a context of, of very strong demand. Powell twice said the Fed was still seeking the sufficiently restrictive funds rate, a sign that he is at least not sure if the Fed has done enough yet. But the Fed chair also acknowledged there were risks on both sides of the Fed doing both too much or too little. And there was a dovish side to his statement and to the interview. He said that the following uh, forces could yet keep the Fed at bay. There are considerable monetary policy lags. He said that there are high bond yields out there and geopolitical tensions as well. His main point on the direction of policy Not that exciting. Simply the Fed would proceed, quote, carefully watching the data and the outlook and the balance of risk. So uh, ultimately, the market took the Fed as more dovish with probabilities for another rate hike actually falling. You can see here that we're below 5 percent on the November hike, below 30 percent on December and not much even higher for for January, where that number had been as high as 50 percent. Whether Powell was dovish will depend on, hey, how the data break. If the economy doesn't cool and inflation doesn't come down, the Fed could be back in the hiking game. But Powell made clear he was going to give you at least a couple months here to let the economy and the outlook sort itself out. Kelly? Wow. Steve, stay with us as we talk more about the surging bond yields that we've seen today and in recent weeks. 
The 10-year Treasury reaching 4.9% for the first time since 07, almost five, putting pressure on stocks. Let's bring in Brian Jacobson, chief economist with Annex Wealth Management. Brian, welcome to you. Is this move in yields fundamentally justified? Well, you know, I think it is, especially if you consider that one of the big fundamental forces in the bond market, the Fed, is continuing to do quantitative tightening. And so, you know, they're not in there being that price insensitive buyer. Uh, foreign demand has also diminished, so households have sort of had to step in. So looking at it through that lens more as far as the fundamental forces based on just issuance and the flows, then I think that the move is somewhat justified. But I also think that it makes it that much more attractive if you can hold these bonds to maturity. And I think that's one of the big challenges. Oftentimes, investors, we have to get access to bonds through mutual mm -hmm. funds and ETFs, and you have to deal with the mark to market. Uh, so to the extent that you can maybe you know, hold some of these in individual fixed income portfolios, it can make the ride a little bit more tolerable. Right, exactly. Um, I guess the reason I ask is because we're all trying to figure out if this is a good rise in yields on stronger economic fundamentals or a bad rise in yields by kind of this unabated treasury supply that seems to be overwhelming markets. I do think that it is that supply coming from the Treasury as far as that surge in supply, which you know now that that's maybe more visible, and we also have perhaps a Congress that isn't going to uh, you know continue to blow out the deficit at least for the next year or so. Uh, so if you've got some gridlock, maybe some of those deficit uh, or those spending cuts as part of the debt ceiling lifting agreement can come into play. Maybe that could do something as far as a surprise to the downside in terms of some of the supply out there. So uh, on our investment committee here at Annex, uh, you know, thankfully, a lot of them were tempering my enthusiasm about adding to bonds when we got to 4.5%. Uh, I kind of wanted to go all in and uh, thankfully, you know, their clearer minds and better thinking prevailed and uh, kept us at bay. Uh, but now that we're getting closer to 5%, it does look a lot more attractive for the longer term. Well, next time we'll invite those other guys on. I, I guess <laughs> so, they don't have as nice of a tie as I do. No, the, no, or, yeah. no, the view that you do clearly. Let me ask you this though. I, the, you know, for most of the past couple of years, or during this rate hiking cycle, uh, investors have been paid to stay very short duration. Are we getting to the point now? Maybe we're two months away. Maybe we're six months away from the point at which it will make sense to go out duration and lock in those longer term yields if you can um, hang on to maturity or even if you can't because you may, uh, if rates start to fall, uh, you would then be able to sell it at a capital gain. Yeah, that's really the key question here. And it's really what distinguishes this uh, increase in rates from the previous ones that we've seen, say, post GFC is just how high that short end has moved already, that there's not a huge incentive to lock in those longer term rates yet. All you're getting is duration risk. But you do want to lock those in at some point. Yeah. Uh, now, my take is that the Fed is probably going to be slow to react to a slowing economy. And as a result, let's say that by September of next year, or maybe June, they will consider starting to cut. And then really, it's around that time that maybe it makes more sense to start locking in those longer term rates. Now, of course, the market is going to try to move before that. But Chair Powell, I don't think he has, you know, we talk about hawks and doves, sometimes it comes across more as like a dodo bird, I think, instead. I'm not sure there's like this clear, consistent messaging or this like worldview about how they should conduct monetary policy that'll keep investors guessing until probably the middle of next year. Steve, I thought it was kind of interesting. I believe it was Powell who was saying that 
Effectively, if it were not for the amount of fiscal stimulus that is still working its way through the economy, maybe interest rates wouldn't have had to go as high as they have. I think you heard correctly. I think that there's they're starting to nudge you a little bit, or nudge, I guess, is another term you might use about the fiscal deficit situation. Uh, they, had, they had previously really not said anything, and now they're starting to talk about the unsustainability of the deficit. They don't want to talk about current spending issues or current um, decisions being made, or, or I guess not being made in Congress at the <laughs> moment. Uh, they don't want to get involved in that. Uh, uh, that was a, a troubling uh, era or period for the Federal Reserve, going back to when Greenspan talked about the need for tax cuts back in 2000 um, and other comments that have been made. But I think they are trying to put the um, fiscal authority on notice that this is a problem, this is an issue that they're going to have to deal with. And, and there's a thing that's called fiscal dominance when you talk about monetary policy. And that's when what's happening on the fiscal side dominates the monetary policy authority. We are not there, but who knows what happens, Tyler, when the amount of uh, we spend on interest becomes a bigger and bigger portion of the budget. Will there be pressure from the political side to the Fed to lower interest rates? That would be fiscal dominance. Yeah, interesting. Steve Leisman, thanks very much. Brian Jacobson, thank you as well. We appreciate your time. Thank Steve you. Steve will be speaking with Atlanta Fed President Raphael Bostic tomorrow morning, 7.30 a.m. on Squawk Box. We look forward to that, and we'll see what the market responses. And now let's get the take on the traders, uh, traders' take on today's action from Rick Santelli in Chicago. Rick. You know, fiscal dominance. I like that Steve brought that up. That is a phrase I hear 10 times a day lately. And what I hear it used most is the way Mr. Powell should potentially address the notion that the Fed is offsides when they go into the fiscal realm. Fiscal dominance. The word dominance means, Chair Powell, you need to pay very close attention. Dominance is a significant word. Just like the move in twos and tens and the twos, tens spread. If you look at an intraday of twos, then look at a two-day of twos, you can clearly see what's going on in the short end is a lot different than what's going on on the long end. Look at tens. Tens versus yesterday, well, their yield's going to challenge 5% and probably get even closer to it as the session wears on. That twos to ten spread hasn't been at minus 21 since September of last year. Let's call it 13 months. Let's go find a trader. Hey, Paul. Okay. Okay, so let me grab the microphone here. We've seen a lot of action today in the form of volatility. I see what interest rates are doing. What do you see in volatility and equities? Well, it's kind of been a microcosm today of what we've seen the last few months. We've had a bunch of big moves up and down, and we end up in the same place. Um, volatility is definitely higher than you would expect at this future level if you were just looking at the two charted against each other. Um, that's would what we're I be seeing. Wrong? Would I be wrong? There's plenty of investors watching saying, okay, Paul just said we're going no place quick. Isn't that normally a period where volatility starts to level off, but it keeps climbing? Yeah, because we've been moving. There's definitely been moves. They just always, they've been reversing both directions. I got you. Now, when it comes to interest rates, I look at what's going on and I see that many believe that the Fed's key issue is whether they can remain in control because it certainly seems the long-dated issues are doing the job of trying to address how much it costs and will cost to service the debt. How will that affect the way you may approach the equity complex and the relationship between bond portfolios and equities? Uh, that's 
the interplay we're seeing right now and talking today, Chairman Powell was trying to uh, thread the needle a little bit, mentioning what you just said, but then also acknowledging that they might have to do something in the future. And he's trying to probably buy himself some time and see what happens. If rising interest rates are going to be a killer for equities, do you think that the fear is going to be more about what the Fed does or more about what the market long end is doing? Your final thoughts. Well, the rates are up a lot in the last 18 months, Rick, and they haven't tanked the equities yet. So I don't know if I would agree with that premise that the rates are going to kill the equities. And you know what? That's a great place to leave it because, folks, I can't tell you how many traders I run into who think that the equities could survive even a semi-messy landing. Tyler Kelly, back to you. All right, Rick, thank you, and uh, thank you to the trader guest. And coming up, Tesla shares down 9% after reporting results. Coming up, we're going to talk to one of the biggest bears on the street. His price target is still $100. That would be a cut in half from here. Meantime, shares of AT&T up 7% following its results. Uh, Lilly will be very happy, saying the results of the release of the new iPhone encouraged more people to upgrade. Genuine Parts having its biggest drop since March of 2020. Sales fell short of analyst estimates. That's your power check, folks. We'll be right back with much more. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back. Uh, Tesla shares sliding more than 7% after missing on the top and bottom line yesterday. Elon Musk shared his concerns about high rates hitting the consumer, and it was music to the ears of our next guest, who says it broadly supports his bare thesis. Uh, joining us now is John Joyskow, he uh, Guggenheim Securities uh, expert. He's got a sell on Tesla and a price target of more than $100 below the street average. John, welcome. Good to have you with us. Um, it sounded not only was uh, Elon Musk concerned about um, interest rates and that, but he was very concerned about affordability of his cars and losing market share as a result of their priciness. Yeah, no, it, it's it's a very real problem uh, globally. I think if you think about interest rates and the the price point of, of Tesla vehicles, the, the average payment on a Tesla vehicle right now is north of $800 a month on a Model Y. And the percentage of U.S. households that can afford a payment like that, there was a good study by Cox Automotive that suggests it's something in the 10 to 15% of U.S. households 
actually have enough income to afford that, and that's just based on the ability to afford a monthly payment, let alone the actual cash balances and things like that. Yeah, and I, I, I agree. The idea, I think more people buy the payment than buy the price of the car. Of course, the two are uh, inextricably uh, linked. However, uh, so what? How, he's in this box. How does he get out of it? Well, I think the business is actually doing quite well for a cyclical automotive business where it is. It, it's really the valuation of the, the company that's kind of disconnected from, from the product they sell. Um, coming into the print, there were kind of three tenets to the, the bull thesis at Tesla. The first one was, was pricing and margin stabilization. I, I don't think we got that this quarter. I think it's pretty clear that the direction for, for pricing and margins remains negative. Uh, the product cycle, people were bullish ahead of the Cybertruck and the Model 3 refresh. Uh, the Cybertruck discussion on the conference call was, was pretty sobering, I think. It, they they largely indicated that it would be a dilutive product, at least for the next 18 months. And the Model 3 refresh, we've highlighted to clients that it's not a perfect metric, but customer deposits fell quite a bit quarter over quarter. We would have expected that to increase if, if they were building backlog of product. And then full self-driving, we, we didn't get the tangible updates that bulls were looking for related to to FSD licensing and and really kind of these longer term bull narratives. So strike one, strike two, strike three here. Exactly. I think that, that's a fair characterization. Ron, your price target is one hundred and twenty five dollars. Do we know what proportion of Tesla shares are retail versus institutional ownership here in the sense that this often has been a cult stock where um, it's more about the personality of Musk and the it reminds me of crypto a little bit. You know, who's got diamond hands and who doesn't here? Yeah, the we don't know the split. We do know that on any given day and the average day, Tesla is the number one traded retail stock by an order of magnitude of, of four to five times. But in terms of the actual ownership, Tesla's Tesla's float turns over far more than the average stock. So it's really difficult to know. Right. I guess my question would be how much of the share price is fundamental and how much reflects, um, you know, just enthusiasm about everything that Musk himself has achieved or what Tesla may achieve over the next five or 10 years? You know, in other words, does that depend yeah, on different question. factors than just, um, you know, kind of going through the balance sheet? Yeah, it's a great question. I think I think we our price target, 125, has has a very good handle on the auto, the energy, and even full self driving as it currently exists and charging as well. The what we don't give credit for because we think it, it's it's far too difficult to have confidence in is things like robo taxis, humanoid robots, things like that. So whether that's retail or something else, we, we think there is about a hundred dollars of of kind of not currently existing businesses getting credit how, for, for Tesla. And how big you can call if, it the Elon premium. That's that's fair. I think how, he's he's earned he's earned the right to have it be called the Elon premium. I think that, that's fair. How big uh, a contributor eventually to revenue might the fact that so many uh, other manufacturers are now adapting to the Tesla standard charger and the, and the, and then to their ability to build out the charging networks that are going to be needed, presuming people buy mm -hmm. into electric cars. How, how, how much is that going to help? Yeah, well, we have the charging business at Tesla, including all of the NAX partnerships worth about $10 per share. That basis for that is a 2035 scenario based on the global EV car park, but primarily US where they've become the standard. Mm -hmm. um, 
we think it can add about 50 cents a share to earnings in 2035. So not wow. insignificant, but not. But that's a long way uh, away, man. Uh, well, yeah, you think the, the the amount of new vehicle purchases, their electric vehicles are still in the high single digits in the U.S. They're about yeah. 7 to 8%. It takes a long time for the percentage of the total car population to become electric vehicles. Yeah. So that's why we went out to 2035. Yeah, no. Yeah, and, and all right, so, so 50 cents in 2035, that's what uh, probably... <laughs> Equal to about it's a nickel a, a now. Of, I don't know. It's, it's it's actually it's actually about two billion dollars. It's quite significant of earnings. Yeah. It's just that Tesla's uh, a eight hundred billion dollar company. Yeah. Ron, real, I guess just finally or quickly or, or what have you. I mean, Musk did make some interesting comments on the call about basically high interest rates weeding out the strong from the weak. And do you think that they will be a death knell for some of the EV startups and competitors, and even to some extent a major headwind for the big three and their ambitions to compete? Yeah, I think in the U.S., Tesla's cost leadership is pretty well established. So I, I think I think it's a fair commentary from Elon that a lot of the legacy manufacturers will, will struggle to compete on cost. I think there, there are compelling products coming out of Hyundai, Kia, and, and other legacy manufacturers. But the real competition for Tesla today is is in China, whether it's BYD, GAC, Aon, yeah. a handful of other manufacturers. And the question then becomes if that technology or those brands can can come to the U.S. Oh, ultimately. A thousand percent. Absolutely. All right, Ron, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Ron Yesico. Coming up, sky high valuations. Open AI reportedly in talks to sell shares at an $86 billion valuation. We'll get the details when Power Lunch returns. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back. It's not a public offering, but OpenAI is looking to sell shares at a pretty high valuation. Let's get to Deirdre Bosa out in San Francisco for the numbers. Deirdre? Kelly, it actually delays a public offering. So this potential $86 billion valuation also makes... OpenAI, one of the most richly valued startups on Earth, behind only TikTok, Parent, ByteDance, and Elon Musk's SpaceX. OpenAI, though, offers a new twist on the startup structure, which is worth noting. It is a capped profit limited partnership governed by a nonprofit board. That means that profits in excess of 100 times return will be passed on to an overarching nonprofit company, which will disperse profits after that as it sees fit. Now, put another way, six individuals, the board, has control of OpenAI's ultimate profitability. Three of them are from the startup's founding team, and three are tech entrepreneurs working elsewhere in AI. They're researchers. Anthropic, that is the other generative AI darling that's reportedly raising money at a higher valuation also, has some similar quirks in its structure. An independent five-person committee can hire and fire the company's board. Now, in the way that other tech founders like Snap and Facebook held on to their control past IPOs, the biggest AI companies, they're now ensuring that they can hold on to control much earlier on in the startup's life cycles. Their justification, though, it's different here, guys. 
It's moral. They say that their fiduciary duty is not to its shareholders. It is, and I quote from the OpenAI charter, their duty is to humanity. So these unorthodox structures, they have done nothing, however, to deter investor interest. Our tech tech team did a deep dive into these valuations, putting them in context and against the valuations of the largest public AI players like NVIDIA and Google. That's at CNBC.com slash TC Weekly. Uh, Kelly, these structures, highly unusual, interesting, all in the name of humanity. So clearly generative AI is doing things in a different way. That tells me they haven't yet reached uh, you know, listen, this is like Google and don't be evil, evil in like 2005, whatever that was. Um, you know, give it some time. That, that's exactly. why give it some time. Maybe <laughs> exactly. It's going to still benefit from getting in at this valuation. Uh, Deirdre, we appreciate it very much. Deirdre Bosa. Two cheers for humanity. All right. Let's get over to Contessa Brewer now for an CNBC News update. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Tyler. The State Department is urging Americans to use caution when traveling abroad. It issued a worldwide caution advisory today, warning of increased tensions as the United States supports Israel in its war with Hamas. The State Department says there's a greater potential for terror attacks, demonstrations, or violence against Americans. An American journalist with dual Russian citizenship has been detained in Russia. Her employer, the U.S.-funded Radio Free Europe slash Radio Liberty, says Alsu Kormasheva was taken into custody because she did not register as a foreign agent while visiting for a family emergency. She's the second U.S. journalist to be detained since the start of the Ukraine war. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich remains in Russian detention since his arrest for espionage in March. And federal meteorologists think it's unlikely we'll have a white Christmas this year because of warm and wet El Nino weather. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, NOAA, predicts a large part of the country, including New England and the Pacific Northwest, will see above average temperatures for November to January. So, Tyler, I'm thinking if it's going to be warm anyway, we might as well book our Caribbean cruise. Yeah, let's do that. Right? Love it. Not you and me together. I mean, I'm going to take the kids. I got what you meant. Thanks a lot. (laughs) All right, ahead on Power Lunch, crude reality. Oil prices turning higher as the war in Gaza could have far-reaching implications for the global supply. We will discuss that and more after this quick break. All right, welcome back to Power Launch, everybody. Oil prices slightly higher today, but up 6% in a week. You know who knows all about this is Pippa Stevens. Back from Virginia Beach? Yes, I know. That was a cool shot you had. Oh, thank you very much. I did not seem as tall as it was. I know. You know, really kind of raining on my parade. (laughs) You should have said it. It looked like 600 feet. Well, let me tell you, it was taller than I was, and that's how I measure height. (laughs) um, But, yeah, so today oil is back in focus. It did reverse earlier losses while Chair Powell was speaking. But, of course, this week it's all about the easing of the sanctions on Venezuelan oil. So last night, the Treasury Department issued a six-month easement on those sanctions in exchange for Venezuela holding fair and free elections next year. So prior to this round of sanctions that were implemented by Trump in 2019, Venezuela was producing almost three million barrels per day and exporting about half a million barrels per day to the U.S. Our Gulf Coast refiners are set up to process their heavy, sour crude. But then the sanctions had a big impact and their output last month was 800,000 barrels per day. So this is one of the options the U.S. has to turn to, especially if we're going to crack down on Iranian output and Iranian exports. Venezuela starts looking 
relatively better. That said, analysts aren't all that optimistic for a few reasons. The first is that there's been so much underinvestment in the country, you can't just ramp up. Also, there's a six-month easement on, on, uh, on sanctions, and so there's no clarity beyond that because it's dependent on Venezuela holding those fair and free elections. I also heard they have a lot of nat gas, and maybe that could be something else they'd love to get in there on the European market. But again, we have to tread so carefully here. It's, you know, this is a tough one. Yeah, and also with ESG in focus, you know, if you're an oil and gas producer company, this is not exactly the market you you know, you don't really want to be in this market. Chevron, right. of course, has been producing there, but they're the last major U.S. company to actually have a presence in Venezuela. Wow, for now. Pippa, thanks. We appreciate it, Pippa Stevens. Let's drill down, shall we, on a big mover in the energy space. Now, Liberty Energy shares are up 6.5% today to a new 52-week high. They just posted strong third quarter results after the bell yesterday. The company also hiking its quarterly dividend by 40% starting in the fourth quarter. Here with more on that, uh, plus oil outlook Look, as tensions rise in the Middle East, is Chris Wright. He's the chairman and CEO of Liberty Energy, the second largest fracker in North America. Chris, welcome back. It's good to see you. Great to see you, Kelly. Did I get that right? You just hiked the dividend by 40 percent. Is that variable or that's that's got fixed? It all right? No, that's our fixed dividend. That's we, we've grown the earnings power of our shares dramatically over the last two or three years. And so we reset the dividend 40, 40 percent higher. Wow. So talk to us a little bit about how sustainable, you know, the entire energy space right now has investors who absolutely love it um, and then some tourists who get frustrated by its volatility. So just kind of walk us through the fundamentals that you see for the next couple of years. Yeah, like the last 10 years has been highly volatile for our industry from macro conditions and too much overinvestment, too much erratic behavior. I think our industry's consolidated to fewer companies, a little more disciplined behavior relatively tight supply and demand in the global scale for oil and natural gas. So business outlook, I think, is pretty solid. I think we're going to see still, of course, it's still a cyclical commodity, but I think we'll see more stable behavior in the next few years than we've seen in the last few. And um, yeah, outlook for Liberty's business is quite strong. How do you see uh, the war in um, Israel, um, between Israel and Hamas affecting uh, the supply issues, affecting the 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 uh, the supply and demand balance? Well, Tyler, so far, no impact on global flows of oil from the war. There has been a small downturn in global flows of natural gas. A Tamar gas field offshore Israel has been shut. Just that smaller field being shut and some sabotage in the Baltic Sea and a natural gas pipeline have already popped natural gas prices in Europe about 20%. They were already in a fragile situation to begin with. So, so far, it hasn't moved oil markets except a little bit of that fear premium. Maybe oil's 5 or $8 higher than it would be otherwise. The fear is, does Iran get you know, more directly involved in the conflict? That would be a game changer. Because that would mean uh, stiff, stiff sanctions on Iranian production, even more than we have today. Absolutely. And of course, what we've had today is we've sort of looked the other way the last nine months, and Iranian exports have grown a lot. Um, and uh, but yeah, if Iran is directly involved and there's a curtailment of the flow of oil from Iran, um, yeah, oil is certainly well over hundred dollars a barrel. How would you? I, I'm I'm not familiar enough. Maybe you can tell me where your production comes from, what parts of the country you operate in. How would you characterize domestic energy supplies? High, low, middle, what? Yeah, so well, right now, U.S. oil and gas production all-time highs. Both are at all-time highs. 
Um, but there's disciplined investing. We're not growing oil production as fast as the country could grow oil production. And, and my company, we help other companies produce oil. So we frack nearly 20% of all the wells drawn, drilled in the U.S. and Canada. So, you know, we work from northeast British Columbia down to the Mexican border. So we're in all the basins and we work with basically all the company names you know. And the public companies are disciplined and careful in their approach flat to very modestly growing production, and they don't change their plans very quickly, at least not anymore. Um, private companies are different, Tyler. If you know if oil prices spike up, they'll increase their activity. You'll see a response in American production, mostly from the privates, to a sudden, sudden big rise in prices. Chris, thank you so much. Hope we can count on you coming back again sometime soon. Thanks, Tyler. My pleasure. Chris Wright, Liberty. Thank you. Right, some of America's biggest banks have been quietly laying off workers all year long with some of the deepest cuts yet to come. We will get details of all of this when Power Lunch returns. Big banks kicking off earnings season, and though the results were mostly strong, there is some underlying weakness, perhaps, in our Houston reports today that big banks have been quietly cutting jobs and more layoffs could be coming. Hugh is here now in the studio. Who's doing it and why? Hey, Tyler. Great to be with you. So the headline here is that any bank not led by Jamie Dimon uh, has <laughs> been cutting jobs this year. If you look at the big six banks who've all reported, uh, Wells Fargo is the biggest sort of perpetrator here. They've cut uh, about 11,000 jobs or about 5% of their workforce uh, in just this year alone. And you look at uh, another one, and that's, uh, you know, apart from Wells Fargo, there's also Goldman Sachs. And both of these uh, institutions have had these you know, businesses that are hit in, uh, into the wall of high interest rates, whether it's, uh, you know, advisory or trading on, in the, uh, on the hand of Goldman Sachs or with Wells Fargo, they have, uh, they had a huge mortgage business, which obviously is sputtered to a, a standstill. And so these, these are the, you know, the little stories within the, the larger story. And the larger story is that if you look at these five banks, they've cut about 20,000 jobs so far this year. Why has J.P. Morgan not chosen to go that route? What's different about <clears throat> yeah, them? J.P. Apart Morgan. Apart from J.P. Yeah, Dunn. Yeah, J, I mean, it's, uh, he's a lot of it. So they are in a category of one here. They're still growing. They picked up First Republic. That added 5,000 jobs. And I thought that would be much of it. But really, that was just a third of the 15,000 jobs they picked up. Uh, so they're growing. They're growing their net interest income. They're growing their deposits. They're growing their revenue. And they're still, uh, you know, they're actually growing their uh, branch network as well. So, you know, apart from that and the tech investments, they really are firing in all cylinders right now. I may be catching you off guard here, but of course, earlier this year, UBS took over Credit Suisse. What's happened there? Do you know? Yeah, yeah. massive, massive consolidations, right? So when you combine uh, two huge global investment banks, they do a lot of the same thing. So unsurprisingly, you're going to see uh, high, high double-digit uh, job cuts, and they're enacting on those cuts to make the whole thing work. What about the midsize or the regional banks? Are they doing the same thing? Yeah, I mean, so they're about to report. So we're actually still seeing those figures come out, whereas the big six have reported, and that's why we have those numbers. Mm -hmm. I would suspect that their employment levels are going to edge down. And the analysts I spoke to have this, this thesis, which is, you know, credit has been really good. Uh, you're going to see corporate and consumer loans start to fail next year. And when they do, you're going to see folks have to rein in the expenses. And the one way they could do that is to cut jobs. It all takes me back to a couple of years ago, that famous miss that JPM had when it was on higher expenses. And I think it was kind of like peak inflation, 
peak salary pressure and that kind of thing. And and we're just in such a different envir- environment today. And it shouldn't be missed. I mean, it does tell you there's been something very different taking place in the economy from whatever that was 18 months ago until today. I, I think that's all valid. And the fact that, you know, one of the things that surprised me about this story is, you know, everybody from Gorman to Diamond to other folks have said, the reason why that they're having to cut jobs now is that people aren't moving. Attrition is unusually low. Hmm. So you remember a couple of years ago, yes. people were getting Quits Peloton rate. bikes. Right. It was so they were rate. getting bonuses and huge raises, two, three raises in a single year yes. just to stay put. Now, and now, now that you know, the environment's different, you know, these, these bankers, they're risk averse. They're staying in their seats. And that tells you something. If these guys are staying in their seats, what are they concerned about coming down the pipe? Absolutely. Great point. Yeah, they're staying in their seats. They're not selling their houses. No. They're stuck. Hugh. Are they using the Peloton bikes, though? That's the I question. don't know. <laughs> coat racks now. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hugh, thanks. Hugh son. Let's get to Netflix. Shares are soaring on that su- surprise subscriber growth in Q3. We will trade it and other movers of the day in three-stock lunch next. Look at those shares up 16%. Welcome back, everybody. Shares of Netflix higher on the back of better than expected third quarter results. Very much better. Julia Borson has the key numbers uh, fueling those results. Hi, Julia. Tyler, look at Netflix's stock chart. That stock surging 16% today, and that's thanks to much better than expected subscriber growth of 8.8 million new subscribers in the quarter. That's driven by Netflix's successful crackdown on password sharing, converting what they call borrower households into paying members. The company is saying they expect this trend to continue to boost additions for the next several quarters. Morgan Stanley raising its estimates and price target on the stock and upgrading it to overweight, noting that some of the froth in the stock and expectations have come out, saying, quote, we believe Netflix will deliver the objectives it set out a year ago, accelerate revenue growth back to double digits and expand margins. Now, Kelly Tyler, Netflix showing its confidence in demand for the service by boosting some of its prices, also showing its interest in driving subscribers to its ad-supported tier by keeping that price the lowest and the same. Back to you. Ooh, exactly. Uh, We were talking about that yesterday. Julia, thanks. And speaking of Netflix, it's time for today's three-stock lunch. Here with our technical take on the stocks today, we welcome Katie Stockton, founder and managing partner at Fairlead Strategies, also a CNBC contributor. Katie, great to have you. What do you do with Netflix now? Well, I'm a buyer of Netflix. It it has gapped up through its 50-day moving average in response to earnings, and that followed a pretty sharp corrective phase. People always tell us to buy into weakness, and yet it's very, very hard to do. It would have been the right thing to do with Netflix. It did flash some counter-trend signals into the downdraft. And now we have these oversold uptrends, which I find pretty compelling, both on the daily and also the weekly charts of Netflix. So within the context of the long-term uptrend, I think we probably have an intermediate-term entry here. The initial resistance is roughly 440, but perhaps it can get back up to at least this year's highs. Very interesting. All right, let's move on to another one, uh, sort of in a similar sort of category. Shares of Best Buy, slightly higher. Goldman Sachs upgrading it from neutral to buy, highlighting the potential for an upswing in demand, driving to the upside. So you go home, you you get your new Best Buy TV, and you watch your Netflix. What do you think of Best Buy? You know, I I think a long-term neutral bias is probably still appropriate for Best Buy. It is in a trading range. 
within that context, I understand the upgrade. It did get quite oversold and now is reacting to that oversold condition. It doesn't share in any kind of breakout, but it has reacted positively and it did happen near a support level. So there is at least some room for Best Buy for near-term upside follow-through within the context of that long-term range. The 200-day moving average, I believe, is around 77 and seems like a reasonable upside objective. Hmm. All right. So maybe $8 or so. I haven't talked about Best Buy in a while. What about AT&T? It's actually higher today after posting a third quarter earnings beat. They had some better subscriber growth. They lifted their free cash flow target. And we know all the telcos have just been uh, in a really tough place earlier this year. Right. Well, we've gone from a long-term uptrend in Netflix to now a long-term downtrend right. in AT&T. <laughs> the uh, gap higher today It is a promising short-term development. It's not really a major breakout on the chart, but it does, of course, show that there is some renewed momentum behind it after the consolidation phase. It had already shown a loss of intermediate-term downside momentum, and it's got some room to the first major resistance, which is above about 16 and a half. So if we can consider this a counter trend move in there and also a little bit higher risk, I think we can feel comfortable that we'll see momentum continue to improve, but really just in the near term as well here. All right. Sorry, AT&T for now. Uh, Katie, thanks so much. We appreciate it. Of course. And we will be right back. Welcome back. Fast fashion retailer Shein is considering an IPO after a meteoric rise lately, but there are a lot of issues facing the company. CNBC.com retail reporter Gabrielle Von Rouge has that story. And now we have to think of them and Timu as big Amazon competitors here. Absolutely. They really are big Amazon competitors. And it's important to note Shein, of course, denies that they're considering an IPO, but we do know this is part of their long-term strategy to cap off that meteoric growth with a market debut. But they have a lot of hurdles that they need to overcome first. Lawmakers are really concerned about their ties to China, as well as forced labor from the Uyghur population and their supply chain. Um, They're under investigation right now with Congress for that, exactly. Oh, wow. Now, are they talking about a New York IPO, or would this be a Hong Kong listing? Uh, What the suspicions are, the rumors are, is a U.S. opening, which is why these hurdles are so crucial to overcome. Lawmakers right now are really skeptical of companies founded in China. Xi'an, I assume, denies that they use forced labor. Of course, but they actually have acknowledged that um, cotton from the Xinjiang region, where the Uyghur population is primarily exploited, has been found in their cotton. In about 2.1 percent of cotton samples, you find the Xinjiang cotton in Xi'an's clothes. And that's compared to about 13 percent across the entire fashion industry. So this oh, is wow. actually a problem for all of fashion. Wait, is they have less exposure potentially to this problematic cotton than the rest of the industry? Yes. That's shocking. OK, the other thing that I think people are trying to, to sort out is are they using some kind of um, loophole there with mm-hmm. cheaper uh, so if it's Xinjiang from these difficult regions, or is it that they have a better mousetrap? So one of the arguments that they and Timu make, I believe, is that their inventory management systems are better. They hold less inventory. They can turn, I mean, so that, mm-hmm. that it's, they're competing on those terms. Yeah, so Xi'an is absolutely competing on those terms, and they're very quick to point out that we don't offer cheap clothes because of uh, tariff law loopholes or anything like that. Our business model is strong enough for us to be able to do that. But that's where Congress's scrutiny is really beginning. Because of this tariff law loophole, um, 
Shein ships its products directly to consumers from its Chinese suppliers. So if those packages are valued under $800, they're not going to be subject to the same U.S. customs screenings that mm. other retailers are. So that's how they're concerned that, you know, potentially these clothes were made with Uyghur forced labor and they're not being found out because of that. What about IP concerns, intellectual property? IP concerns is another big issue for them. In July, they were sued by three designers who alleged that their copyright infringement was so extreme, it could be considered racketeering, mm. which of course is a something used to take down mob bosses. You know, the company, of course, calls the lawsuit frivolous and, and that they're going to vigorously defend it. But it is a concern. And the executives did note to me that, yes, mistakes do happen. When you're making 60,000 new SKUs a month, wow, which is enormous. Um, but of course, these are small batch, just like you said. So maybe 100 to 200 of each SKU. Mistakes do happen. They're using tech to identify it. Um, artists can submit takedowns notices if they think that they've been infringed upon, things like that. And have they been criticized uh, for environmental uh, issues as well? In other words, that the clothing ends up in landfills? Yes, um, because consumers... Because it's cheap and... You it's almost disposable. Yeah. When you can buy a shirt for $5, how many times are you going to wear it? You know, So they get a lot of criticism for that, but it is important to point out that they are very different from other retailers when it comes to environmental. Most retailers, they plan to only sell through about 60% of all of the inventory that they buy. Shein, because they have an inventory light model, they have far less waste. So they may have less waste on their end, but the concern is how the consumers are mm -hmm. using their clothes. That's a great point. Gabrielle, thanks. Continue to follow this for us. Gabrielle Font-Rubin. All right, we've got news now on the House Speaker drama, and Emily Wilkins has it on Capitol Hill. Emily. Hey, Tyler. Well, House Republicans just spent the last four hours discussing whether or not they should empower Speaker Pro Tem Patrick McHenry with the ability to pass legislation. And they eventually came out and said, hey, that proposal's dead. It's now in Jim Jordan's hands. He's going to be meeting with some of the holdouts. And then we may or may not get that third vote on Jim Jordan later tonight. But at this point, uh, Congressman Don Bacon told us earlier today that he expects the next time Jordan goes to the floor, he'll lose a 10 more Republicans. And and it's just not clear at this point what path Republicans are going to take to actually elect a speaker. Guys, what does he think he can do by per, to, by way of trying to persuade those 20 who voted against him? That is, that is a really great question. I mean, there are a number of things that lawmakers have put out there, a number of asks that they have. But at this point, there's not really one thing that Jordan can do. It's just a lot of distrust at this point, a lot of concerns about how this process has unfolded. And it's just not really clear what he can do to win their support in the next hour. All right, Emily, thank you very much. Emily Wilkins following the story in Washington for us. Thanks for watching Power Lunch, everybody. As the markets move to session lows, closing bell starts right now. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.